0: We'll hear argument now in number 04480, MGM Studios versus Grokster Limited. Mr. Varelli. Mr. Chief Justice, and may it please the Court,
1: copyright infringement is the only commercially significant use of the Grokster and Streamcast services, and that is no accident. Respondents deliberately set out to capture a clientele of known infringers to stock their services with infringing content. They, they intentionally and directly promote infringing use of the service. They support
2: infringing use of the service, and they directly. Just to interrupt with the one you said. The only significant use is a footnote in the red brief that says the figure is some two point six billion legitimate uses.
1: Yeah. Yes, Your
2: Honour. Correct or incorrect?
1: Well, I, I think it's an, an absolutely incorrect assertion of reality, and, and perhaps I could delve into it and explain why. The uh, The evidence in this case, which was presented at Summary Judgment showed that 90 percent of the material on the services was either definitely or very likely to be uh, was infringing. There a finding of 90 percent? Well, this was submitted on Summary Judgment, Your Honor, and, and uh, we lost Summary Judgment, so the evidence has got to be construed in the light most favorable to us. And the Ninth Circuit decided the case on the assumption we submit of 90 percent. But with respect to that 10 percent, uh, what happened, and we submit it's completely wrong, is that the Ninth Circuit, drew the inference because it wasn't shown by our expert study, which, by the way, is the only empirical analysis in the case, to be infringing that the Court could assume that it was non-infringing and then extrapolate from that to a number. Along the lines of the, the number that Your Honor uh, suggested, and, and I think that that's a completely illegitimate analysis factually. And, and besides, that number is big <laughs> only because the overall activity is so big. The scale of the whole thing is mind-boggling. If there are that many
2: non-infringing yes, uses, yes, so it goes to the accuracy of your statement that there is no other significant legitimate use.
1: I don't think there. I, I think it's quite accurate on the, on the summary judgment record, and certainly drawing the inferences in our favor as we must here on, summary, on this summary judgment record that there is no commercially significant non-infringing use.
3: But they could be. They could be, both with respect to material in the public domain and with respect to people who authorize the transmission.
1: I, I don't think in the context of this record and this case and the business model of these defendants, Grokster and Streamcast, that that is true, Justice Ginsburg. I don't think that's right. I think what Grokster and Streamcast are arguing is that this Court's decision in Sony Stands for the proposition that uh, it, that their massive actual infringement uh, is gets a free pass, a perpetual free pass, so long as they can speculate that there are non-infringing uses uh, out there, such as public domain uses uh, and and authorized uses. We don't think that 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 Sony stands for any such proposition. We also want to point out that that doesn't help them. That proposition doesn't help them with re- respect to one very significant part of this case, and that's the fact that they intentionally built a network of infringing users and they actively encouraged and assisted infringement. Now, even if there are commercially significant non-infringing uses, and we submit there most definitely aren't under Sony, but even if there are, that's no defense to a contributory infringement claim based on intentional uh, building up of an infringing business and active encouragement and assistance of infringement. And it it can't be, because otherwise, then the fact that they had commercially significant non-infringing uses, again, would be just a free pass to actively promote infringing uses, not merely to support them, but to promote them. And so- So
4: your argument, I take it, would be the same if the proportions were reversed. Uh, Your argument with respect to to your current argument with respect to infringing use would be the same. Uh, if only 10 percent, if it were assumed that only 10 percent of the use were illegitimate and infringing, the is act, that correct? The active encouragement aspect of our argument would be the same. That's Certainly,
1: right. they don't get a they don't get a free pass to encourage any infringement. Is,
5: it, is that the same as active inducement? Yes, is that I think term there's, there's a lot of used?
1: yes, Justice O'Connor. There's a lot of lingo floating around in this case: um, inducement, active encouragement, and assistance. if, if
5: we should think that. Uh, the respondents are not liable for the type of, uh, contributory infringement uh, dealt with in Sony. Uh, could this court reach the question of active inducement on this record?
1: Yes, very definitely. I think, I think the court of course should find that there's contributory liability in the Sony theory, you but you with do, respect but I to just that said, theory... Could you yes. assume
5: for a moment should that... That we Just didn't, could, could we nonetheless address the active inducement?
1: Yes, Justice O'Connor, and let me explain why. The District Court in this case issued a partial final judgment under Rule 54B, granting the respondent summary judgment motions. Now, we argued for contributory liability on two theories in the District Court and in the Ninth Circuit. We argued that there was a lack of commercially significant non-infringing use under Sony. And we argued the inducement or active encouragement theory. We argued that both theories entitle us to relief against the current operations of the service, to entitle us to damages and entitle us to injunctive relief. To eliminate the, the, the harmful, ongoing, infringing consequences of this intentionally built-up infringement machine, the district court granted summary judgment against us and gave a clean bill of health, gave absolution essentially to the uh, to the current versions of the services. The only thing that was left to us, as the Ninth Circuit and the district court uh, and, the, and the district court both uh, understood the law, is that we can go back and try to show that with respect to specific past acts of infringement. If we can show that they occurred at a time when we had given them notice that they were about to occur and that we had the power to — and that they had the power to stop them at the moment we gave them the notice, that we can get damages for those specific things and those specific things only. That's all that's left in this case. And I think it's quite clear from the Rule 54B certification order of the district court that it was only damages for the past services
6: and the past acts. It's not clear, it's, it's not clear to me from your brief um — Focusing on the contributory aspect of it, not, not, and not the inducement part. Of it. Uh, is that clear to me from your brief what, what, your test is? Uh, what, what, what do we tell the trier of fact? What, uh, that if there is a substantial part of the use which is non-infringement, if there's any part?
1: Here's what I, here's what I think the test is. Leaving aside the inducement. Right. Here's what I, th- here's, here's what we think the test is on the, the, what we'll call the Sony aspect of the case. That it's, the, the question here is the, that Sony posed seems to us is, is really a touchstone kind of question, not a numerical kind of question. The question under Sony is whether this is a business that is substantially unrelated to infringement. In other words, are they building their business on supporting legitimate activity, or instead are they building their business supporting infringing activity? But well, then we just throw and, this to the birds on the and, trier of fact, in I'm, every case substantially. Well, no, how do we know that? And, and then that's where, that's where you start. That's the touchstone. Now, the numbers, the relative pur- proportions of use, are relevant. In a case like Sony itself, certainly, where the majority use was non-infringing, that's a legitimate business. You don't need to go further. In a case like this one, where taking the record at summary judgment uh, in our favor, as it must be, in the Ninth Circuit's assumption, that you've got 90 percent infringing use, billions and billions of acts of infringing use, and minuscule actual non-infringing use, it's, it seems to us it's just you're the MR. Polar- you're not saying you, — now you're using different tests.
7: Your test was substantial. All right. On your test, are we sure if you were the counsel to Mr. Carlson that you could recommend going ahead with the Xerox machine? Are you sure, if you were the counsel to the creator of the VCR, that you could recommend, given the use copying movies, that we should ever have a VCR? Are you sure that you could recommend to the iPod inventor? that he could go ahead and have an iPod, or for that matter, Gutenberg with the press. I mean, you see the problem.
1: Yeah, I think my answer What's to those answer? questions are yes, 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 and yes. Because could in be each sure. case, because well, the, I know
7: the monks in, had a fit when the, Gutenberg made his press. But, but the, <laughs> the, the, the problem, of course, is that it could well be in each of those instances that there will be vast numbers of, of uh, infringing uses that are foreseeable.
1: I disagree with that, Your Honor. Certainly not I, — I don't think there's any empirical evidence to suggest with respect to any of the things that, Your Honor, just identified. And let me pick out the iPod as one, because it's the most current example, I guess. From the moment that device was introduced, it was obvious that there were very significant, lawful uh, uh, commercial uses for it. And let me clarify, because that's something I think is unclear from the amicus briefs. The, the record companies, my clients, have said — for some time now, and it's been on their website for some time now. That's perfectly lawful to take a CD that you've purchased, upload it onto your computer, and put it onto your iPod. There is a very, very significant uh, lawful commercial use for that device going forward. And remember, I, I, what our test is—our test is not substantial. Our test is that it's a, it, it's a when, it, when, it, when there's a vast majority use like here, it's a clear case. Of contribution. It, how do you know
8: going in, Mr. Varelli? I mean, uh, you, you know, I'm, I'm about to start the business. How, how much time do you give me to, to, to bring up the lawful use to the level where it will uh, outweigh the unlawful use? Uh, I, I have to know going in. And, well, and it, it's one thing to sit back and, and, you know, calculate with this ongoing business it's 90 percent, 10 percent. But I'm a new inventor, and I'm, you know, I think the way I'm going to get sued right away. I know I'm going to get sued right away before I have a chance to build up a business. I don't think
1: that's right, Your Honor, and, and here's why. It's not just the absence of commercially significant non-infringing uses that demonstrates contributory infringement. Right? You have to demonstrate that you're making a material contribution with knowledge that you're doing so. The inventor at the outset is not in that position. They're not making a contribution with knowledge that they're doing so. Do they have absolute certainty? No, they don't have absolute certainty. Well, but I, I don't
6: quite understand this. uh I, I take it inventors are profit motive driven, and if they know that something that they're working on is going is to have copyright experience, you, you have got copyright problems, you, you can't just say, oh, well, the inventor's going to invent anyway. Well, I, but the problem, Or did I
1: misunderstand no, you? No, I, I think that you have, to show contribution, you, should have, you have to be making a material contribution with
8: knowledge that you're doing so. And, and but the, well, but why? the inventor of Xerox does that. I mean, he puts out the machine. He knows some. Uh, he knows a lot of people are going to use it. Does Xerox uh, books? I, I don't
1: think that's right, Justice Scalia. I don't think there's anywhere close to a showing. That, I don't think there could be anywhere close to a showing that that you've got the vast majority of use from inf- for infringement from the time that that the device comes out. I just don't think that's
4: well. Let's go, let's and, go from Xerox back to your to your iPod. Uh, how is that clear in the iPod case? I, I may not understand what people are doing out there, but it's certainly not clear to me. I know perfectly well I could go out and buy a CD and, and put it on my iPod, but I also know perfectly well that if I can get the music on the iPod without buying the CD, that's what I'm going to do. And, and I think it's reasonable to suppose that everybody else would guess that. So why in the iPod do you not have this Damoclean sword? Well, because I don't
1: actually think that there is evidence that you've got overwhelming infringing use. I just think that's — it's not a — it's not a — Well,
4: there's a, never a, evidence at the time the, the, the guy is sitting in the garage uh, figuring out whether to invent the iPod or not. Right. And I mean, and that's I the think when so you get to the — I think
1: when you have vast majority infringing use, they, sh- they should be on the hook. Now, I don't okay, think we have that problem no, in the iPod. but you're not mind.
4: answering — you're not answering the question. The question is, how do we know in advance on your test — anything that would give the inventor or more exactly the developer the confidence to go ahead as as was said a minute ago he knows he's going to be sued immediately uh there isn't a a a product performance out there as there is in this case so on on your substantiality theory why isn't it a foregone conclusion in the ipod that the ipod loser or developer is going to lose his shirt
1: well, be, 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 first of all, I don't, I think it's just counterfactual to think that there's going to be overwhelming infringing use of the iPod in the way that there indisputably is here. Second, to the extent you get to closer cases, it is our position, as I, I gather it is the position of the United States, that you look at to see what kind of business model the defendant is operating under. Is it a, is it, are they marketing it for legitimate purposes? Are they taking reasonable steps to prevent infringement? If they are, then they, then
8: they're not liable. Third. That, that, that's your second argument, I think. Uh, I thought you were going to just stick with the, uh, with, with the first one. I mean, that. And that's an inducement a, argument, yeah, isn't it? that's an inducement.
1: No, I don't think it is an inducement argument because it doesn't go all the way to requiring us to show, as we can show here, that they've got intent. But I, I do think that the, the issue is, you know, really in, in the real world, you know, it isn't the case that these guys have gotten immediately sued. That's just not right. And the, and the reality is that what happens is what happens here. There's perfectly valid but uses. It, but, of, it, but it is the case under the test you're submitting to us. No, I don't think that's right, Justice Kennedy. If there's vast majority infringing use and you continue to operate your business with the knowledge that there's vast majority infringing use, then you've got liability. Now, of course, we do have all the additional inducement facts here, but we've also got those facts. And in the real world …
5: Are you dealing with active inducement as just a theoretical add-on, or is that a satisfactory way to resolve this case?
1: I think that it is a – I I think – I, I, I don't Neither, neither is the pitch. answer. Neither, huh? neither is the answer. It is a basis for resolving this case, but not to the exclusion of getting the law right on Sony.
3: But you couldn't get summary judgment. Your reply brief said, this case is so clear that we should get summary judgment. If inducement is the theory you have just said, you have to show intent. So yes. you, you could not. You'd we,
1: have to go to trial. We agree with that. We think in a situation where the vast majority of the use is infringing, and there and there isn't any evidence of a legitimate business plan on the Sony part of the case, we would be entitled to the summary judgment. We agree with you, Your Honor, that with Sony the
3: itself had a trial. A That's right. Trial. It came
1: after the trial. That's right. But the. Um a key point I think I want to make here is that this is not about this technology. What happens in the real world is that inventors come up with technology. Some people use it for lawful purposes and valid purposes, that some people use this technology for. Some people abuse the technology to run business that, businesses that are devoted to expropriating the value of copyrights. That's exactly what's going on in this case. If I could reserve the balance of my time, Mr. Chief. Justice. Very well, Mr. Burley.
0: Uh, Mr. Clement, we'll hear from you.
9: MR. CHIEF JUSTICE, and may it please the Court. The decision below allows companies, like respondents, to build a business model out of copyright infringement without fear of secondary liability. As long as they avoid obtaining actual knowledge that a particular customer is about to infringe a particular copyright, they are free to operate a system that involves massive copyright infringement with full knowledge that the draw of the entire system for customers and advertisers alike is the unlawful copying. No matter how much of that
5: system- What do you think Sony allowed? It it talked about if it's, what, capable of substantial non-infringing use, it's okay?
9: That's right, Justice O'Connor. And then I think the Court explained and elaborated that the test is whether or not there are commercially significant non-infringing uses. And I would say what the Ninth Circuit did in this case is basically adopt a test of mere theoretical capability for non-infringing use, plus maybe some anecdotal evidence.
6: And, and what in your test is, whether there's a substantial uh, uh, use that's, that's lawful?
9: Well, I think the way we would try to articulate it is that if, if if the way that the business model of the particular defendant is set up is that they are not involved in a business substantially unrelated from copyright infringement, that there should be liability in that situation. And I think in an extreme case like this, where over ninety percent of the, the business and I think I think Mr. Vurley really correctly describes that it, it's not a minimum of ninety percent, it's over ninety percent. Because the only evidence on the other side is anecdotal evidence that there are Here's such things as public domain works.
0: Where did the 90 percent figure come from? I know we have to accept it because it's summary judgment, but where did it come from?
9: It came from a study by petitioners' experts of the actual operation of the system. And what they did is they identified about 75 percent of the works as clearly infringing works. Another 15 percent of the works were identified as very likely infringing works. Then there were 10 percent they just couldn't tell anything about. I thought
7: it was just limited to music.
9: Well, I, I, I think the, it's not, the system is not limited to music. I know, but
7: I thought the study was about music.
9: I, I'm not sure about that. Well, I
7: thought, I mean, you know, we've had 90 briefs in this, and some briefs tear it apart and others support it, but we also have briefs from the ACLU saying you could put whole libraries within this system. The question I wanted to ask you is, given that concern that there are conceptually, anyway, really excellent uses of this thing, does deliberate in, uh, what is the word? Uh,
9: actual inducement.
7: Yes, because what you were worried about, it seemed to me, that the actual inducement would take care of. And if you sent it back and said, "Let's have a trial on actual inducement," if this really is the extreme case you're talking about, why wouldn't the uh, uh, the uh, petitioners here be bound to win that trial?
9: Well. I- Based on our review of the record, and we haven't been able to see the entire record, I agree with you that petitioners ought to be able to win this case on an active inducement ground, and that's a narrow way to decide the case. I do think, though, this Court might have to say something about the Sony issue before it reached that issue. And if it did feel compelled to do that, I think it would be a mistake to sanction the Ninth Circuit's reading of Sony. Because you're right, there's a theoretical possibility that public domain works can be exchanged on this system, But it's also true that this system doesn't have much of a comparative advantage for trading in in public domain. Well, you got
5: interrupted a bit. Tell us, in in the simplest way you can, what test you think Sony stands for and how the Ninth got it wrong, if you believe it.
9: Justice O'Connor, it stands for — the test is whether or not there are commercially significant, non-infringing uses. The Ninth Circuit got it wrong because it thought that test was satisfied by a combination of two things being able to point out that there were such things as public domain works or authorized sharing of a Wilco album, for example, and anecdotal evidence that you could actually do that. Now, if that were the right reading of Sony, with respect, I would suggest that footnote 23 of this Court's Sony decision would have been the sum total of the Court's analysis, because in that footnote, the Court observed that there were broadcasts of public domain works.
6: Suppose the owner of the instrumentality, the program, uh, thinks that there's going to be a, a — a vast area of lawful use and he knows that there's going to be some abuse at the at the in the short term uh but he does everything he can to discourage that he said now this uh, two, uh p2p uh is going to revolutionize the way we talk to each other there's things in the public domain uh please don't use this for copyright uh and but he knows that there's going to be some infringement uh let's say that it will be 50% of the use in the short term uh can he uh use the program
9: if it's 50 percent infringement in, in in the short run, we think absolutely yes.
6: Yes, that he can he use can the program. He can use the
9: program. I mean, as we suggest, if you're at a 50-50 — I mean, if you're anywhere below 50 percent, we think that there should be no liability under the Sony standard. If you're above that level and there's sufficient evidence that you're really targeting infringing uses, then I think maybe there would be liability. But in the hypothetical you suggest, there would clearly not be liability in that situation. What we would like to suggest, though, is there ought to be enough room under the Sony test, before you reach actual inducement, to capture somebody where they've clearly set out as a business model to deal with the infringing uses. And the only thing they point to are the theoretical possibility, anecdotal evidence, that it could be used for public domain work. If there's
3: more, they could bring it out at trial. Could they not? The the difference between your position and Mr. Varelli, I take it, is that you think there should be a not summary judgment for the petitioners, but a trial.
9: I think that's a fair point, Justice Ginsburg. We're operating on something of a disadvantage because we haven't seen the entirety of the record. Based on the record that I've seen, I think there's a close case, unless perhaps once this Court clarifies the legal standard, respondents put on additional evidence. I think this is a close case where you actually could grant summary judgment in favor of the petitioners. But certainly we have no objection to having a trial on the Sony issue in this case. What we object to is the Ninth Circuit rule, which in every case is going to obviate the need for a trial based on a showing that there are such things as public domain works.
8: The inducement, uh, the inducement point doesn't, uh, doesn't get you very far. Uh, presumably uh, a successor to, to Grapster or whatever this outfit is called could simply come in and uh, not induce anybody but, but say, you know, we are setting up the same system, know very well what people are going to use it for, but not induce them, and that would presumably be okay.
9: I think that's potentially right. Which is why you need
8: the Sony. And that's why I think
9: it's important to preserve a role for the Sony test. And, again, this Court in Sony could have adopted a a simple theoretical capability test, but this Court instead adopted a test that required there to be shown some commercially significant use for the non-infringing use. And even in the patent context, where I think the test is and should be more demanding, even in that context, cases like Fromberg, which we cite at page 19 of our brief, show that there is an analysis to make sure that the suggested theoretical non-infringing use is, in fact, a practical use of, of the idea. you item. give a
8: company 10 years to establish that?
9: Well, I, I don't
8: think one would I mean, what I worry about is the suit that just comes right at, right out of the box as soon as the company starts up. Will you give the company a couple of years to show that it's developing a... A commercial use?
9: Well, Justice Scalia, we have concerns about that as well. I don't know that we would give them 10 years of sort of free space to do as facilitate as much copyright infringement as possible. I think what we would say is that when, you're, when, when, a, when a suit targets a nascent technology at the very beginning, there ought to be a lot of leeway, not just for observed non-infringing uses, but for the capacity of non-infringing uses. I don't think, in fairness, that's what you have before you in this case, Because this is a case where the peer-to-peer technology was out there. It was employed in a particular way with a centralized server in a way that was actually uh, had a lot of users involved in it. And they were users of the the old Napster system that had a distinct character. They were using that system for infringing copyrighted musical works. And then these individuals come along and seek to capitalize on that market. That is their business plan from day one. And it's not some newfangled idea. The only newfangled idea here is that if you give something of value away for free by ignoring the copyright laws, you're likely to draw consumers to your site and you're likely to attract advertisers. But that cannot be the kind of innovation that we want to in further through a development of secondary liability under the copyright M- law. MR.
4: Mr. Clement, in, in one way, this presents an easy case for answering Justice Scalia's question. But what about a case in which there, there isn't the Napster uh, example to start with? Should there be some kind of a, a, a flexible ripeness doctrine uh, in, in response to, to suits, as Justice Scalia put it, uh, against the inventor or developer right out of the box?
9: Well, whether you call it a flexible rightness doctrine or you develop the doctrine in a way that is very forgiving brand of brand new technology. Converse of latches. Right. I, I mean, I, I think the way I would style it is to develop a substantive standard that's very forgiving of brand new technologies and allows people to point to, in those situations, capabilities for future uses. I do think how, how would you express
4: the substanti- how would you express that, that substantive standard that anticipates, just as, as, as you suggested we do?
9: Well, I, I was just trying to articulate it, which is to say that this, this court has talked about the capacity for non-infringing uses. I think with a mature product like this, it's fair to point to how it's actually used in the marketplace. Thank you, Mr. Clement. Thank you.
0: Mr. Toronto, we'll hear from you.
9: Thank you,
10: Mr. Chief Justice, and may it please the court. Because respondent software products are tools of autonomous communication that have large and growing legitimate uses, their distribution is protected under the clear Sony rule. That rule should be adhered to by this Court because copyright does not generally step into the role of product control because doing so would cause overkill. The Sony rule safeguards legitimate uses. BY PROTECTING THE PRODUCT. Yeah, but
5: active inducement uh, is a doctrine that's been employed to curb the intentional encouragement of non-infringing uses, isn't it?
10: Um, Not in copyright law, it hasn't, but but that's not my primary point. (coughs) My primary point is that it is critical, it is jurisdictionally critical, to separate two separate acts, distributing the product and any of the past acts. That the petitioners allege constituted encouragement, their synonym for inducement, which were explicitly outside the district court ruling that was certified um, for interlocutory appeal. Questions about past acts, not inherent in the distribution of our product, they, remain. They in the are is-
8: inherent. They are inherent. I mean, the point is that those past acts are what have developed your 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 client's uh, current uh, clientele.
10: No, I don't think so, Justice Scalia. The petitioners I, — I, this is what I think is, is here and usable about the past acts. They claim that there is an intent as part of the current distribution of the product to profit from increased use, including gener- generically known infringing use, a point on which the District Court and the Court of Appeals — Um, assumed to be the case. Beyond that, the question whether there were encouraging acts, any kind of promotional activity that says we ask you to and urge you to um, use this product for infringement, that is not here because that was explicitly um, part of the past activities removed from the district court decision. And when the petitioners sought interlocutory appeal, they said expressly these were distinct and severable In their terms, that's a quote.
4: I I don't understand how you can separate the the past from the present in in that fashion. One, one, I suppose, could say, well, I'm going to make inducing um, uh, uh, remarks uh, Monday through Thursday, and I'm going to stop Thursday night. The sales of the product on Friday are still going to be sales which – are the result of the inducing remarks Monday through Wednesday, and, and you're asking, in effect, you're asking us to ignore Monday through through a Monday through Thursday. No, no,
10: I'm I'm not. Let me try to be clear. There is a theory not present here, along exactly those lines, which petitioners are entitled to argue, back in the district court without a remand because that issue remains in the district court. It is a theory that says you started your business with illegitimate acts, your current business is a causal consequence of that. I will say there is not one bit of evidence that the petitioners introduced in resisting summary judgment in support of that theory. It is, in fact, a highly implausible theory for reasons that the district court can explain, because users of software like this switch readily. There is no plausible lock-in effect to this software. People go from Kazaa to Grokster to eDonkey to BitTorrent, um, week by week. Um, that was — that is an available theory. Illegality and, and why, of —
4: why was current — why was inducement as a current theory of recovery even a subject of summary judgment? It seems to me that to make it a summary judgment uh, is, is, is implausible to a, a, a non-worldly degree.
10: Uh, I, I'm not entirely I — mean, I,
4: I thought you were saying that so far as the inducement theory of recovery is concerned, yes. the only summary judgment that was granted was with respect to current acts of inducement, the way the company is acting now, not the way the company was acting last year. And, and my question is, if that is correct, then I don't see how summary judgment could even intelligibly have been considered.
10: I think because, as the petitioners insisted when they um, pressed for interlocutory appeal, they said these were distinct and several. Well, because, as Justice Scalia referred to before, the important question on a going-forward basis is whether the current set of activities, this software, given how it operates, being generally distributed, is — it renders — the distributor of that software, secondary, secondarily liable, because somebody else tomorrow can do exactly the same thing without the baggage of any Well, I, I, I,
6: acts. I, I don't want to get us too far off the track on this question, but it, it just seems to me that what you've done before bears on what uh, you know or have reason to know uh, on an ongoing basis. I, I agree
10: with that, Justice Kennedy, but there's no dispute about that. This case was decided on the assumption, which we are not contesting here, that the, the respondents here. Knew that there would be widespread infringing use of a product that they were putting out, and what's more, that they intended to profit from maximum use of the product, which necessarily would include infringing use, which they had no ability to separate from non-infringing well, use. Well,
6: then why don't you tell us what's wrong with the, with the government's test and with the petitioner's test, um, the substantial use part? No? Well, I'm not —
10: I'm not — I think there are several tests, and I'm not sure I followed them them all here. Um, we think it is critical that the Court adhere for innovation
3: protection to the very clear Sony rule. That, Sony Mr. Toronto, is something I find very puzzling. There is a statement, one could take it as clear, capable of substantial non-infringing use. That would be very clear, I agree but Sony goes on for 13 more pages. If the standard were all that clear, it would have stopped there. And usually when you're interpreting a document, one rule is you read on. And if you read on, you find we need not give precise content to the question of how much use is commercially significant. That doesn't sound very clear to me. Or if you then read back, as a careful reader would, Then you find this statement that the primary use of the Sony machine for most owners was time-shifting, a use that the Court found either authorized or fair and hence non-infringing. So I don't think you can take from what is a rather long opinion and isolate one sentence and say, aha, we have a clear rule. Well, that that sentence, Justice
10: Ginsburg, is expressly stated to be the rule of law that is being applied. And then the Court went on to apply it to say there are two things that satisfy the test. The primary thing, of course, is what takes up most of those 13 pages, the question whether in-home time-shifting is fair use, a question that was of considerable interest to tens of millions of individuals throughout the United States. But the Court, in fact, didn't rely only on that. It said, in addition, there was this roughly 7 to 9 percent use of authorized time-shifting it wouldn't have had to even talk about that if, um, if the primary use, you know, was was the entire. Mister. I campaign. hope you
8: won't waste a, a lot of your time on this point. I, the, this court is, is certainly not going to decide this case on the basis of stare decisis. Uh, you know, whatever else, is is true.
10: Well, I, I, let me let me urge urge that there is in fact considerable weight to stare, stare decisis because there are major technological industries that have relied on the the rule that derived from patent law, that there is no kind of um, predominant use kind of um, uh, uh, meaning to the Sony rule. In the patent context from which this came, all there has to be, in, in Professor Chisholm's words, is uses that are not far-fetched, illusory, uneconomical for the user. And the inquiry there is, is this a product whose where the same features that are alleged to cause the infringement are also, in some non-trivial way, used for non What what is
7: the answer to Justice Kennedy's question? I took it whether for the last 21 years, industry throughout America has taken the standard as being approximately whether it is capable of substantial commercially significant, substantial, non-infringing uses. Yes. I, and the country seems to have survived that standard. There is innovation. There are problems in the music industry, but it thrives and so forth. So there is an argument for just following it because it's what it is. But suppose it's totally open. Why should that be the right test instead of some other test, like substantial use, et cetera?
10: That I I I think was
7: the question, and I'm very interested in your
10: answer. Right, because I think any alternative is worse. A focus on intent to profit means that virtually every business which requires money and has the least bit of sensible, forward-looking thinking about what the usage is going to be will be subject to litigation, arguing about their knowing that a substantial amount of the value of the product was going to be um, based on, on
6: infringement. But, Every- but what, what, you have, what you want to do is to say that unlawfully expropriated property can be used by the uh, owner of the instrumentality as part of the startup capital for his product.
10: Um, I, and, well, and
6: I, just from an economic standpoint and a legal standpoint, that, that sounds wrong to me.
10: Well, I'm not entirely sure about that formulation. Sony clearly sold many more tapes because of the illicit activity of library. Um, Sony presumably sold more machines, maybe even priced them higher um, because there was a group of people who wanted the, the machine for the illicit activity. The Apple iPod in the, in the 60 gigabit version holds 15,000 songs. Well, That's you think a that unlawfully CDs.
6: expropriated property can be a legitimate part of the startup capital?
10: No, I, what I think is that as a matter of general, judicially formulated secondary copyright liability law, there is no better policy balance that the court can strike and that only Congress can make the judgments about what the industry-wide facts are I, let me pause there a minute. There are no industry-wide facts in this record. Every citation in the petitioner's brief about the magnitude of harm to the industry is extra record citation. There are 26 billion — And perhaps this should be a trial. So uh, n- n- it would no, all come out. Petitioners, it's, it's not just that, that they didn't have it in their brief. They did not submit any evidence in response to the summary judgment motion that said the rule of Sony should be applied here because the magnitude of the injury to the recording industry or in someday in the future to the movie industry is X.
3: Zero evidence. Well, they weren't concentrating on the damage to them. They were concentrating on the facilitation of copying that was provided. And you, and you don't question it, that this service does facilitate copying. As does the personal computer and the modem and the Internet service provider
10: um, and the Microsoft operating system. There's everything in the chain that makes this work is absolutely essential to facilitating the copying. The question is which which pieces, if any, and under what standard get singled out for a judicially fashioned secondary copyright liability document. When you,
3: when you said, I th- think you were you were saying, this is something for Congress to solve is not for the Court. But the Court is now faced with two — it's apparently conflicting decisions, Amster and the Seventh Circuit, the Ninth Circuit decision. And if you're just looking at this in the abstract, you might say, well, it's — isn't it odd that Napster goes one way in the Ninth Circuit and this case goes another way? Let let, let me suggest why why that's not odd and why the cases are
10: not just different but critically different. Napster rests Never mind the exact words of the opinion. Napster involved something more than distribution of a product. Napster, the company, was sending out in response to requests, where is this file, an answer. The information. The file is here. Every time it sent out that information, if it had been told by Mr. Virilli's clients that file may not be shared, it was with specific knowledge to that file, giving assistance, that is a classic contributory infringement case based on specific knowledge of infringement. And the reason Why isn't
4: this a classic willful ignorance case?
10: Because willful ignorance is about having possession of information and refusing to look at it. This that does not occur here. This tool of autonomous communication is one in which there is no mother may I system, no chaperone, no no um, information provided to us at the time that there is any request. When I ask ask for a file from you, there is no information that goes back to Streamcast or to Groxy. Sure, but
4: I I thought willful ignorance was basically a certainty of what was going on without empirically verifying it, uh, so as as to sort of maintain the, the the guise of one's hands over one's eyes and it seems to me if that's what it is that's what we've got
10: no I, I i don't think so i think on on either account my my understanding of where in the law willful ignorance has bite is when you do have the information right in front of you and you refuse to look at it and what's more the the change of system to an autonomous communication tool where there is no intermediary which is what all of their filtering systems would require getting permission in advance. The change of tool is not just s- some way of blinding oneself to the information. Yeah, I,
8: I think it would also include uh, uh, disabling yourself from looking at it. And, and so I think it's an important part of your case that you didn't adopt this new system of decentralizing the, the file so that it's, it's, it's in the, the computers out there solely in order to get around uh
10: Right. And and I think that the summary judgment record on this is, is, I mean, doesn't doesn't leave any real room for dispute. Seeking
7: In respect to that, I mean, is it open, if if you win on the question of the standard, is it open or would we have to remand it for them to argue in light of the history, in light of what they do now, they, your client, with knowledge of infringement, actively encourage users to infringe copyright using their, using, uh, the Groxford technology. And indeed knowingly would include willful blindness. I think- uh, Because, uh, as i got gotten that from one of these amicus briefs, you know, that's their standard, they say, of willful, of willful, uh, deliberate inducement. And that it seems to me important that they'd be able to argue that. Now, can they argue it, in your opinion, if we do nothing but affirm the Ninth Circuit?
10: I think that they can certainly argue um, with an affirmance by this Court that all of the past Acts, to use the District Court's term, constitute a basis for, um, for a in- inducement liability. There would be some legal questions about whether there is such a thing as inducement liability, but they get to argue that. No remand is required for that. The record in this case establishes um, that one reason for going to the decentralized system without a central um, index and a third-party intermediary was to uh, was a reaction to the Ninth Circuit's Napster decision that said that's a legal problem. But it is also, um, I think, beyond genuine dispute for summary judgment purposes, that there were other reasons. You don't have to have... The servers to maintain. When Streamcast, in particular, was running a Napster-like system, the so-called Open Nap system, it had 10 servers and quickly maxed out and started crashing. And immediately um, concluded, I think this is at page 789 or 790 and 798 of the joint appendix, we would have had to start. Um, doubling, tripling, quadrupling the number of servers, and we didn't the have counter- money I, I, I'm
2: still a little puzzled about the posture of the case. Yes. Because I read the district court opinion. He, I think he said, the judge said that both parties agreed that there were no disputed issues of fact that would preclude the entry of summary judgment in, in either way. No disputed issues relative whether to grant belief. And I, it's on page 24A of the uh, cert petition. And I understand you to be saying that leaving everything alone affirming would allow the case to go forward with your adversary seeking damages on an active inducement theory. Am I correct?
10: Yes. I I think um, all I read this, page 24A, to to say is that both sides filed for summary judgment. So each one, of course, thought that there was — that
2: it was entitled to summary judgment. says both parties believe there are no disputed issues of fact material to defendants' liability. I think that's just because each side filed summary
10: judgment motions, and each side filed extensive
2: So then your answer ex- to my question is that yes, if we affirm as a possibility, they could continue to seek damages on an active inducement theory.
10: Yes, absolutely. And there are, there are affirmative defenses that are, are not even part of um, this motion that, of course, would by themselves preclude summary judgment in, in their favor. Um, one other question position. I had.
2: Does the record contain their proposed uh, form of injunction that they requested?
10: Um, I don't think it does beyond the statement at the end of their summary judgment pleading that asked for a very general injunction, stop the defendants from infringing. Um, I'm not aware of anything more specific. Let, let, let me, let me um, comment a, a bit on what the record says about the substantial legitimate uses. Um, this is not a question of you simply saying-
3: Mr. Toronto, before you go back to that, I wanted to be clear on what you were saying would be left over for trial, yes. because as I read your briefing, it was- Well, they can argue about some bad things that Rockster was doing in the past. But this decision says, henceforth, what we're doing is okay. The case zeroed in on now and the future. And the only thing that was left open was something that is over and gone, could get damages for it. But I thought that this judgment gave you – an okay, a green light
10: from now on. I, my, my, my view that, I mean, this, this was not talked about in, in these terms. I believe it um, ought to be open to the petitioners not only to prove that past acts were themselves illegal, but that the causal consequence of those past acts should somehow reach forward into the current acts.
4: Then what uh, is the point of the current summary judgment?
10: The point of the current summary judgment is that there is um, the, the forward-looking uh, character of the activities taking place, starting in September 2002 on forward, ha- has been held by itself not to be a basis for um, — for sex. So you're
4: saying summary judgment simply, in effect, says they're not doing anything wrong now, but yes. we have left open the question not merely of what they may have done wrong in the past, but whether what they did wrong in the past can f- carry forward into the future?
10: It, it — as I say, it, it wasn't stated in those terms, but yes, I think That's that — That's bizarre. Well, I, I don't think so, because — because the important question is — to the petitioners, the entire recording and movie industry, is this set of activities, which you and I tomorrow can start engaging engaging in, one that they can stop. Um, there are literally a handful of, on page 7 and 8 of their brief of- So of you're saying what,
4: what it paper. really says is there's nothing to enjoin, but there may very well be something to recover for, yeah. even as to future activity.
10: Yeah, yes, yeah, exactly right. And they would, have, of course- um, have had to make the very implausible assertion in in a business in which there is no plausible lock-in that somehow a set of isolated um, events, emails, right, a handful of emails out of literally between the two companies, 1,700 a day that might have said, why don't you load some music up, um, are somehow the causal, um, the cause of what is going on Today, let me say a few words about what the record says about legitimate activities. AltNet is a company. This is at eleven sixty nine and seventy of the joint appendix. They say that they have distributed on peer to peer systems hundreds of thousands of authorized songs, and they say millions of pieces of of, of, of video games, leading to sales. This is not a trivial number. <coughs> Jive, at page 67 to 68, speaks about 250,000 peer-to-peer downloads of a music video. The Internet Archive, um, which is talked about in the record, and if you now look at what they are on their website, now lists um, some uh, several hundred Musical artists with 20,000 recordings, which are being put out there for peer-to-peer distribution. The Creative Commons is licensing all kinds of things for um, g- authorized public distribution. Um, there are musical bands.
8: Because I gather that some artists uh, don't make money from the records, but make money from the popularity that draws fans to their concerts, My so they're willing to give away the records for free.
10: My understanding is some is a great understatement. Yes, Um, um, the bands talked about at 159 and 169 to 70 of the joint appendix, which have authorized their live concert recordings to be traded um, among. uh, 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 To be traded, Um, the Gig America business is in the business of compiling. um, This is at 323 of the joint appendix of compiling. Um, musical recordings and other things, for authorized distribution. Um, The world of music distribution and video distribution and um, movie trailer distribution and, in small instances now, text distribution, but growing, um, is changing and making use of this um, extremely innovative, low-cost tool. The great innovation of this tool of communication. Mr. Toronto. Yes,
0: in your motion for summary judgment,
10: did you ask that the plaintiff's claim be dismissed? Uh, well, we, uh, we asked for judgment in in our favor on their claim that our current activities constituted a basis for secondary liability. I'm not sure if we were dismissed with other this?
0: claims. You say on their claim. Did they make other claims?
10: That they had um, a, um, a generic claim about secondary copyright liability. We made the motion, um, actually Streamcast made a motion that said let's carve this piece out and talk just about whether the set of current activities support secondary liability. The, the other side eventually agreed that that was distinct and severable <laughs> from their claim of secondary liability as to past acts and as to past versions of the software, which has which has changed.
3: Where, where does one find that? Um,
10: yes, sir, the motion — well, the the, the the simplest place, I guess, is in the June 2003 — district court ruling, which is in the joint appendix and attached to the brief in opposition, ruled on the petitioner's motion for an interlocutory appeal under twelve ninety
3: two. But the motion itself is not there to take it through the opinion of the court?
10: No, the motion is not is not in the joint appendix. The Most of the motions, in fact, both of our summary judgment motions and their summary judgment motion are in the joint excerpts of record in the the Ninth Circuit, can be found in in the the,
0: 30 volumes. The text on pages 23A and 24A gives the impression that the District Court is disposing of the entire case.
10: Um, That. It, it, it may give that impression on, on those pages um, l- later the court explains that it's ruling only on um, on the current versions of the, so- of the software and then in the June two thousand and three order, the court was explicit in saying, if i haven't been clear enough, let me amend my June or my um, April order, which is what you were just reading from to make explicit the limitation and we quote that in in our brief the, the great virtue of peer to peer centralized software, is that it doesn't require anybody to put stuff onto a server and then bear the costs of bandwidth, of, of, of being charged by the Internet service provider when a million people suddenly want it. It automatically scales. It, the more people who want it, the more people will have it because it will be out there on um, a million computers. That is an inherent distributional economy, together with the autonomy of the user, rather than having a kind of mother-may-I system, with having to check every communication through some third party to say, am I authorized to make this communication that are the virtues of this system and that make it clearly capable of growing the already large hundreds of thousands, even millions of uses that, this, that the, these pieces of software already enable um, people to, to, to do. Um, one, one final, final word. Um, we're not disputing that there are, in an industry-wide way, a set of important policy issues here. Though there's nothing in the record about what self-help measures, digital rights management, encryption, other things, there's nothing in the record about that. There's nothing in the record about what kinds of – Real industry harm is being done by this. Right. This is all citations to websites in, in their brief. These are classic questions of predictive judgment, industry-wide judgments that Congress should should make to decide whether there is a problem in need of solution and what solutions um, ought to be considered. Whether changing the rule would have a overriding bad effect on other industries.
0: Thank, Thank you, Mr. Toronto. Mr. Barilly, you have four minutes remaining. Thank
10: you, Mr. Chief Justice. I'd like
0: to start by
1: clarifying the inducement issue and then explain why inducement is not enough and then uh, have, have a word, if I might, about the reality of this case. The reason, Justice Souter, you find it bizarre is because a shell game is going on here. What the, what the, the respondent's position — excuse me, the, the response position here — is that we can sue for specific infringements that we uh, can show were induced by these specific acts, such as uh, email support. Our position on inducement is that we are entitled to injunctive relief against the continued operation of this gigantic infringement machine, which was built by the inducement. Now, I think that the, the, the respondents have quite clearly said that they they don't think any injunctive relief is available going forward. But we're entitled under Section 502 of the Copyright Act to effective. Relief, not merely a, a relief, injunctive relief that says, go and sin no more, but relief that undoes the consequences of this inducement, of this massive effort to build a gigantic engine of infringement. And that is why they're, they're just wrong about that. And you certainly can't affirm the Ninth Circuit and allow us to go forward with anything like that theory because the Ninth Circuit said the only thing we can sue for the only thing we can sue for is a situation in which we can show that we had knowledge of specific acts of infringement at a time when we could stop those specific acts of infringement. So there's just no way to affirm and let that go forward. Now, why is infringement, why is inducement not enough? It's not enough because, as Justice Scalia suggested, these companies already operate in the shadows. And and a ruling here, which would be I submit a significant cutback of the Sony rule that inducement is the only available ground of liability, would just leave them to paper over. You know, we do have some paper evidence here, paper trail here, but that'll just that just won't exist next time. And and it's just it's just not enough. And I submit that Sony was quite clear on this. Sony said that the staple Article of Commerce doctrine, not copyright law generally, and not secondary liability generally, but the staple article of commerce doctrine. The, the non-inducement part of the analysis has got to strike an effective balance, a, a real balance that provides effective protection of copyright as well as protecting uh, unrelated lines of commerce. Now, Their rule is a rule of immunity. It's a free pass. It says all you've got to do is speculate about. Uh, non-infringing use, and you can continue with infringement ad infinitum. And that's not a rule that protects innovation. That's a rule that destroys innovation. It certainly destroys the innovation uh, of, the, of the creators that the copyright law is supposed to protect, and that's supposed to be the, the, the effective protection part of the balance. that only said this law is supposed to strike. It also, it also deters legitimate technological innovation moving towards legitimate means of distributing this tech, uh, of distributing in a digital format music and movies through the kinds of companies that file the amicus briefs here and are trying to do this legitimately, they are inevitably and invariably undercut by the kinds of businesses that that respondents and the others run. So it deters innovation, it, it, doesn't, it doesn't move it forward. And, and beyond that, Justice Kennedy, as you suggested, it isn't just that they get to use our copyrighted, the value of our copyrighted materials as the seed capital. That's the whole business. That is the whole business. And that's the reality here, and that's the problem. They can talk about the hundreds of thousands or maybe even millions of uses, but the reality is that there are 2.6 billion downloads unlawfully every month. So what they're talking about as lawful is a tiny, teeny little fraction of what's really going on here. And the problem with the rule, which they say is a clear rule, but it obviously isn't in Sony because Sony said strike a balance, and the problem with that rule Your Honor, is that it gives them a perpetual license to keep going forward billions and billions of unlawful downloads a month. They never have to do anything to try to bring their conduct into conformity with law. They're not in the position of that inventor that you identify, Justice Scalia, who who has to sort of think through, what am I doing? They're just in a position where they have every economic incentive in the world to maximize the number of infringing uses because they make more money when they do so. Now, and, and with respect to the reality of this situation, let me just say it. I, I, I must beg, beg to differ, Justice Breyer, with the suggestion that this industry is thriving. What the, what the facts are is that we have lost, the recording industry has lost 25% of its revenue since the onslaught of these of these services. And that's particularly critical because, remember, this is really, the recording business in particular, is really a venture capital business. Most of the records we put out don't make money. A few make a lot of money. Well, What do you think is getting traded on Grokster and Streamcast and the rest of them? It's the few that make all the money. So they're draining all of the money out of the system that that we use to find new artists and and you, and foster development. Thank you. The is submitted.